0: Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books around books, and obviously classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christoph van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, it is my great pleasure to be joined by Jacob Saul to discuss his latest book, Free Market, the History of an Idea, published by Basic Books. Hello, Jacob and welcome
1: hi christoph thank you so much for having me
0: it's my pleasure now as has become the tradition here at bookaholics we always give the first word to the author as you wrote the book who better than you can tell us what it is all about and what you hope to achieve with it so please
1: well you know i i have to say i i'm sort of startled by the way we talk about economics and economic history And in so many fields, for example, in political history, we've spent generations house-cleaning myths away. Um, It hasn't happened in economic history. We still use terminology that I would call mythological. We use the word free market. There's never been a kind of long intellectual history of the idea of free markets. That's actually quite remarkable, right, you would think. Leading historians use the term mercantilism all the time. Um, Adam Smith is constantly touted as the founding thinker of modern liberal thought and of capitalism. I just couldn't agree less. (laughs) These are myths. Um, And it didn't take much, as far as I'm concerned, to show that they were myths. Um, And as I said to you earlier... It was just by literally going backwards, looking at, first of all, the terms that people use, who uses the word free market, who uses the word liberté de commerce, freedom of commerce. Um, And what I found that I find, you know, startling, this started because I am a specialist of Colbert. I've spent almost 20 years in his archives. I've read his papers over and over again. I mean, tens of thousands of pages. And it was after a conference that someone had talked about Colbert and mercantilism. This was like a high-level conference on economic history. And I had to raise my hand and say, he was not a mercantilist. He never said it. He never thought it. And so then I went back to his papers, and I looked for examples of bullionism, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or a few, just a few. Um, I don't even think there were six, okay? I went back, and I looked up. Any interest in war, it's very clear he thought war was bad for business. Well, that's a problem because mercantilists are supposed to like war. Um, he definitely believed in hoarding wealth, but he believed, he had a very clear vision of manufacturing growth. And in fact, as I went back, I found him saying that the liberty of commerce is the most ideal form, but unless trade can happen – on a fair basis, on an equal footing, it won't work. In other words, he then says, we need to build up our commerce so that it can compete with the Dutch and the English. And he said, I don't think we'll ever be better, but at least we can get to a point where we can compete with them. And I went, my God, he is a development economist. He's not a mercantilist. He's trying to actually build a symmetrical market. And then I dug and I found that Colbert had a plan of market building, of building trust and confidence, of building brands, of building industries, but also his most important project was the trade treaty b- between England because he thought that the French not only were lousy merchants, and dishonest, and di- made stuff of poor quality that could not build a kind of international market brand, but he thought that they they negotiated terrible trade treaties. And I said, this guy is a visionary market builder who says he wants to get to liberty of commerce as an ideal through a symmetrical market. And I said, this is not the story we've been told. And I worked backwards and forwards from Smith and him from there, from the two mythological figures of, ec- of economic history. And what I found was, you know, not what we've been told. And um, and that's the book's story.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I like a bit of myth busting, so I, I really enjoyed your, your book with uh, the mythologies. I, I, I always agree when when mythologies are shown to be what they are, myths, then uh, we, we are a step further. And 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 philosophy is is the place where this should happen at least. Now, as your book is a history, I thought it interesting to tackle my questions historically as well. Uh, but as uh, should be known, and as you showed so well in your book, doing history is never just an isolated and moral free adventure. But anyway, before we reach the historical period of the people you just mentioned of Colbert and Smith, you delineate two important historical figures in your book, or or better uh, one author, Cicero and one group or tradition of medieval friars, namely the Franciscans. Can you say something more about Cicero and the Franciscans and their importance in the history of the free market? Well, you know, Smith was
1: a moral philosopher and he was a philosopher of Stoicism and he and Hume were both so enveloped in Ciceronian philosophies that they didn't, I mean, by the way, Smith has no footnotes, but you didn't, you can just hear and see the quotes all over the place from, um, from Cicero. There, there is a a large and powerful American ideological school that believes that Smith um believed in greed. And while I actually think he, he believed in greed for himself, he did not believe in greed as a public philosophy. <laughs> and no stoic could, as I said, and that's just an impossibility. It's not, it's not a legitimate philosophy at that time, in spite of um Mandeville's fable of the bees and in spite of La Roche ideas of the ambiguousness of self-interest, Smith is not promoting greed or even um the self-interest of every class of society. <clears throat> uh, and so, um, sorry, where was I going with that? I'm so sorry. I <laughs> I start thinking about Mandeville and I said oh so so Cicero for for Smith is this sort of central figure, but he's not just central in this kind of general idea of of stoic philosophy. He's central because he also believed that an agrarian, a sort of philosophically Um, well-educated, agrarian elite that were legislators. And Smith talks a lot about the legislator. They're very different than the politicians. Read closely. The legislator is an elite, moral person. um, And the uh, politician is a kind of bad person. These legislators were people who were connected with farming and the land. And one of the things that became clear going from Smith and the physiocrats is they all drew on Cicero, because Cicero showed that if, and he explained that if trade was done in a disinterested way uh, by people, like-minded people, and that to him means senators, Mm -hmm. if they exchanged things in a disinterested way, then they would just continue this system of Rome that would create wealth through good agricultural stewardship and the maintenance of the laws and philosophy and morals. And this is a sort of central tenet of free market thought. You find it in Smith, you find it in the Physiocrats, you find it in earlier thinkers who are who are struggling with how to find a system that will produce perpetual wealth. Rome had the promise or it had its own mythology of perpetual wealth. And Cicero alludes to it a lot in his in works like Definibus and Diophices. And so one of the things I found was that if you go back into those who are thinking about markets and what will create a self-perpetuating market, thinker after thinker, um, really from the early 19th century all the way back into late antiquity, are drawing on Cicero to talk about what will create, how you can create a, a form of exchange that will work and create a kind of perpetual wealth. The late antique fathers of the church were all, at least figures such as um, uh, St. Ambrose and St. Augustine, were readers, not only of, they weren't just readers of Cicero. Augustine was a professor of Ciceronian rhetoric. They struggle with Cicero. Uh, Ambrose writes kind of books against Cicero, he writes on the duties of the Christian clergy rather than on duties. But they're obsessed with the idea of finding a mode of exchange, which for them is moral. And in their case, that mode of exchange is giving up your money for the the, the treasure mm-hmm. of heaven. Um, the Franciscans, I didn't discover the Franciscans, but what I did was I put the Franciscan scholarship together with some of the early Christian scholarship. And the Franciscans are absolutely fascinating because they arrive in this new world of cities and wealth Um in the late 1100s or in the 1200s. And they actually are looking backwards to the origins of the church into this idea of the vow of total poverty. And because that's a very hard vow to take, if you break your vow, it's a mortal sin. So in order to take the vow, they had to understand every process of how value was created. And so in the quest for poverty, so the first people I believe who come up with an idea of a market mechanism where desire will create wealth are actually the early Christians mm-hmm. who say, if you take your sexual desire and your material desire and you you give it up, you renounce earthly pleasure, you become a virgin, um, and you give all your gold to the church or to the poor, you will then ex- you will receive the the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa, that's the passions and the interests, the Christian version, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get to the Franciscans who say, okay, if we're going to be poor, we have to understand, for example, if we use a book, what is the value of the book? When is the book just an object that has value that we cannot own? And when is is it part of our theological mission? And so they start trying to understand values. And because many of them are from merchant families, they start understanding that time, expertise, risk, quantity, all these market mechanisms are part of valuation. Oh. And it's just sort of startling and I believe subversive to some extent to show that the people who actually thought of market mechanisms first were doing so not to get a profit, but to run away from wealth itself, to oh. get away from
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. There's actually a, a very... A, Almost a big library now of 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 books, and, and a lot of them are in Italian. But who and and written by Franciscans who who claim that Franciscanism is actually stands at the source of of what we today call capitalism, but not because they invented it, but because they understood the damage that it could do, and so they 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 knew were they were the the ones that realized what market and what value had in it, and and. But in the negative way.
1: So well, I mean, to... I think I, th- I think it was look. look r- people have to remember that until the Quattrocento, until the 1400s, when Florentine merchants start writing their ricordi and for the first time say that merchants are good, they're morally <laughs> good. In fact, who do they use to prove that they're good? Cicero, which is oh. absurd. Cicero hated merchants <laughs> um, and called them Syrians. Uh, you know, obviously, he's a senatorial landowner. Of course, you would think merchants are low. Um, they're the first people to ever. I just taught this to my students. They're the first people in Europe to ever say merchants are really positive figures, and they use they twist Cicero around to say this. Um, the Franciscans, I mean, if you take people like Occam, who's kind of a hero of mine, although an anachronistic (laughs) hero, right? Um, As I explained to my students, what he says doesn't exactly mean what it sounds like today. Mm. But he's just like, look, the church just has no knowledge of of wealth. There's no expertise of it. And this is the realm of Caesar. I mean, this is what Duns Scotus is also saying. Mm. And in Caesar's realm, that's the realm of wealth, and the church just shouldn't be deciding on these matters. Um, I don't believe that all Franciscans think that wealth is evil, but I do think that they believe that the wealth inequality that they were seeing was unchristian and a sin. Mm -mm. Um, and they believe as, um, uh, uh, my colleague, um, Giacomo Tedeschi has shown, um, in the work, uh, 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 um, looking at, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Sorry, I'm forgetting his first name, Olivi. Um, Is it uh, Pierre Jean Olivier? I can't remember his, his first name off the top of my head. But Olivier, whose work was generally forgotten, but still had great import in arguments and in in the church at that time, you know, he, as others, called merchants paupers, who are the poorest people in the world, those who are s- searching for money. And so he writes this crazily brilliant books on contracts and and on the way of being a pauper in which he describes, first of all, the word capital for the first time, and he describes all the ways in which value is created. Mm -hmm. But there is this idea that you have to save the souls of these people who are looking for money Mm -hmm. because that's that's the worst thing you can do. But I think by that time there is an idea that this new capital this new capitalism, which is being invented by the Italians, is problematic, but it's but anyone who's an Augustinian is just going to see it as the human condition. Remember that the punishment for original sin is land ownership, it's property and labor. And so I mean, this idea, by the way in which Christianity turned that around, and into this Locke and well, Locke, I think, has a sense of this actually. Locke does have a sense of punishment and and the need to be utilitarian and, and all these other things. Um, but I don't think people realize that you know, labor and owning of land were not actually supposed to be a good thing coming out mm. of the garden. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's I again I just find it all very subversive to think about. Why haven't we heard a history of free market thought? Well, it's because it's not happening in the way we were told it did. It's not some big bang or Adam Smith like mm-hmm. giving birth in the back room of the University of Glasgow. No, it's no. literally. Um, there's it's a lot more people. before. <laughs> it's just, but crazy stuff. And for the opposite reasons we've been told. Yeah.
0: yeah. But there's, 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 there's more. And my next question, because you said that, that, the, in the Quattrocento, they, they were starting to think about saving the souls of the people with money. But I think it actually started a little bit earlier. And and my point here is is maybe also quite uh, quaint here. But what I didn't find in your book was purgatory. Well, you wrote about purgatory in another book of yours, The Reckoning. But I think if, if, if one... Uh, realizes and the franciscan's were involved with purgatory as well so sure. there's the, there's a there's a close c- contact here the first people are the category of people for whom purgatory was created if i can be a heretic now um it consisted mainly of bankers of of users, yeah, of of people of who in in the medieval times were the ones who occupied themselves with money yeah. so um, my question that you mentioned the the, the Franciscan. So my, my only question, simple question is, then why didn't you write about purgatory in this book? Because I, I think it would have been a nice addition to it.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. I, I agree. I was I was sticking to the texts that talk about market mechanisms. Okay. Um and for me, I guess I guess for me it was implied by the very idea. That you were a pauper, that you were the poorest person there was, but not poor in the good way, right? Not poor in the way a poor person was. You were spiritually poor because you were looking for wealth. And I do tell it in the reckoning that the early medieval merchants were so scared of going to hell that they gave all of their money away. And by the way, that changes very, very quickly in the 1400s when theology. When theology breaks off, and this is one of the things that's going to lead to reformation and to upheaval in the church, is the celebration of wealth and this incredible societal shift, which definitely takes place in Florence. It will have it will spread around Italy, but the books that are written that say this for the first time, which by the way, I collect in here, and I think it's the first time anyone's put together just the, the recordy from the Quattrocento and merchants talking about themselves in a positive way. I think it's Ruccelli, for example, and others who talk about themselves as we were the people that built the great markets of Florence. I mean, they Mm -hmm. actually say built the markets of Florence and therefore, and this actually is something Pacioli says in his accounting manual, is that these merchants are essential to the good functioning of a republic Mm -hmm. because they pay the taxes. Well, once we get to the good functioning of a republic, then um, as far as philosophy, we're back in the realm of Cicero, and he shows mm-hmm. right back up. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. this is not an aristocratic republic. Now these are mercantile republics, so they twist Cicero around. And I'm like, come on, this is really interesting. This is not the story we have been told no. about market thought, who's essential to market thought, and where it comes from.
0: Mm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Now, you already talked about Colbert. Uh Louis XIV, his famous uh, Minister of Finance, I think your idea of putting him uh, as one of the main figures in the history of the free market is very interesting. And, and I think it's so interesting also because if, if we want to call it mercantilism, it, it's, it's much more honest towards the actual feasibility of the whole idea of the free market. And and it's strange that economists who bank, by the statement that nothing comes for free, do think that the market can absolutely come for free. Totally. <laughs> can <laughs> you it's say something? From, from a magic a, spark. A magic yeah, exactly. Spark. No, nothing comes for free, but then that the whole market thing itself comes for free. Can you say something more just about this idea? You already mentioned uh, Colbert, and, and, and I know he we can talk about Colbert. Uh, you can talk about Colbert for days and days on. But maybe just a little bit more about this, this, this—the feasibility of 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 uh, not the free market, but the fact that it it can't just be absolutely free in the eyes of Colbert.
1: Well, Colbert is. I mean, I compare. France at the time to China. It's a huge lumbering country. It's been sort of crushed by civil war. Its industries have been smashed comparably. Colbert writes about this. Um, and it's got to compete with two nations, which supposedly, according to the myths we've been told, England and Holland emerge. Holland emerged because its people were more industrious than other people. <laughs> Sorry, as literally... I'm sorry. It's just not true. Okay. I mean, (laughs) uh, it's just not true. Mm. Um, And the English, as other historians have said, were more virtuous. They had bourgeois virtues. Mm. My my very close friends, Margaret Jacob and Matt Cadon wrote an article on Weber saying the actual real people who made the industrial revolution were not all English people. They were dissenters. Most Mm. people who were creating... So that means that not all Protestants were creating the industrial revolutions. It was actually a very strange branch of Protestants, mm. and so it's not all Protestantism. I and mean, you can find pre- plenty of lazy Protestants. Just you know, <laughs> come to America, and so I'm sorry, that's an unfair. That was a joke. That was, <laughs>
0: was just a joke. Yes, let's be clear. Or you that, can was, you that was a hard you. That was. Yeah. I'm Belgian, so you can laugh with the Dutch as much as you want with me. So,
1: yeah, I am. Um, Well, I mean, I also just don't believe it's you can make those sweeping statements about peoples. And by the way, none of they, they didn't believe it at the time themselves. The Dutch (laughs) had protectionist laws. The Dutch um, were giving subsidies to foreign traders. The Dutch were creating, the Dutch were just using piracy straight up all the time. I mean, (laughs) the Dutch were using slavery, the Dutch, you know, you had Grotius who writes his freedom of the seas to essentially defend plunder. Um and and to defend slavery. I mean, it's just like the Dutch were brilliant, and Colbert is dealing with the Dutch as someone from basically an Italian merchant Italian merchant family. He knows all the tricks. and he's like, these Dutch are writing unfair trade treaties. The Dutch are giving subsidies. The Dutch are taxing things. He's very much aware of how the Dutch have used development economics. And one thing, um a, a young colleague of mine who's not an academic, but he's publishing a book, um, his name is Alexander Bick, and it's about the Dutch East India Company, and it shows he found all these internal memos to show that it was not a private company, that it was a private state company. It was completely mm. hybrid. They did not start their super early capitalist experiment. Well, oh, by the way, just to note, if the Dutch are so industrious, why did they miss the Industrial Revolution? Mm. That's, that's for children to say five times quickly, right? <laughs> Dutch are so industrious. Why did they miss the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> Well, because because it was really complicated, and also their government wasn't focused on that. It was focused on trade and these other things. But the government, even though it was a diffuse, non-centralized government, nonetheless, hybrided and supported the Dutch East India Company and supported – what we could call mercantilist or i would just call development economics the mm-hmm. english did the same and adam smith notes very quietly by the way that the greatest of all laws was the um navigation law which we would call a completely mercantilist development mm-hmm. economic law which basically is laws in the 1650s that say that um that say that you, you know only english people can work on english ships and there are tariffs on certain non-English products because otherwise the Dutch will destroy their industries. Mm. And so the navigation laws are what literally jumpstart the English economy. And by the way, there are two of my favorite books in this whole story are Edward Misseldon and Thomas Munn's first books, which use the word free market. They're the first books that say free market. And I think there might be another one in the 16th century, but... um. And essentially, um, uh, what they say is in order to have a free market, you need a market, you need trade, and you need a speed of trade to create wealth. So this is really smart. I mean, these guys have understood something about economics. You need an actual high-velocity trade for – oh God. For, um, for for money and economic growth. But they say for this, the state is going to have to be absolutely central in making laws to make sure that this works and that British trade and industry can function. Mm. Their works, which have the word free market in them, have been called by historians semi-mercantilist works. Mm. It's like jumbo shrimp. It's a, It's an oxymoron, right? <laughs> I'm like, so wait, the first books that said free market were semi-mercantilist. I'm like, why is that so hard for a modern to understand that maybe that's what free market thought is, is that these countries that were supposed to have emerged into, into wealth by some natural process, it wasn't a natural process. It was huge government partnership with industries that did it and in England and Holland. And by the way, that's a history that Colbert himself writes in his internal papers. He's, Always complaining about all the brilliant tricks the Dutch use. Not complaining; he's actually writing in admiration, mm. and and in, mm. and in the hope of emulation. Mm. And historically, he's been seen as the antithesis of this. Mm. It's it's actually the opposite. Mm. He's the heir to the Dutch and the English early seventeenth and actually early sixteenth century in the Dutch case um, of their pro- economic projects. Okay.
0: Okay, Thanks so much. Um, before we get to Adam Smith, because obviously we will have to end with Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand, uh, let's first come to days and some contemporary representatives of the free market idea, namely Friedrich von Hayek and Milton Friedman. Uh, these two men are generally considered as the fathers of liberal, even libertarian free market theory. Now, I have to say, and, and this might sound strange in in, in America or in, in other more libertarian free market countries are supposed to be free market countries. I have to say that I'm no fan of these two men. I understand that, especially regarding von Hayek. Uh, some historical issues are to be taken into consideration, but still, their radical take on the free market, based as it is, as you write as well, on uh, bad readings and caricaturing of older uh, economic theories, of justification of South American tyrants, the, what I consider despicable implications of crisis economy. The social Darwinism that comes along with it, and the sheer delusion that man can be saved by economy, it makes me think that the free market of these two men is kind of a bad idea. Can you say something more about this, if you
1: want to? Well, as I've told you, I've been attacked relentlessly by the American right for what, well, for some footnote errors, just, just, and for for saying that they were opposed to any state intervention in the economy. Uh, People have said, no, they believe that there should be security and anti-fraud. They wouldn't believe in, for example, the real anti-fraud work of the government. Uh, They believed, Hayek believed in welfare. I mean, we're talking, if Hayek believes that there should be no state allocation of wealth and capital. So what is state welfare for him, a soup kitchen? I mean, that's what Smith basically Thinks that a soup kitchen is actually opulence for the working for working poor people. Um, I believe that I I didn't say this clearly enough. And by the way, yes, there are I said that someone was friends with someone and they weren't. Um, people have critiqued every single thing I've said in those chapters. Um, others have said there's nothing actually wrong in the chapters or that. My my representation of the Phillips curve was wrong, and therefore you should take nothing seriously. I say I looked at my repre- my my description of the Phillips curve. I went back and read the textbooks. I tried to faithfully represent what I found in the textbooks. It 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 it's really not that important. The idea that they say that there cannot be state allocation. My favorite chapter of Friedman is where he says, and this is actually where my footnotes. We're actually correct. They just misunderstood what I was saying. Friedman goes on and on that the state should never award medical licenses. This is how anti-statist they are. Now, it just so happens that in my studies, I studied um, doctors in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So I know that in Montpellier, you have really the beginning of, of the modern medical uh, 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 university and you have the beginning of the giving of diplomas, which are seen overseen by the state or by the church. Um, there, there has never been a functioning medical system without a state overseeing diplomas and standards. There just hasn't. And this is one of the things. There, just like there's never been a self-perpetuating market without state allocation of resources. It's the exact same thing. But I found that to be so extreme and, and, and paranoid. And I wrote this. And they said all these footnotes are wrong. He says that this footnote leads to... Uh, he says that the state should never have any involvement in, in in any economic affairs. Um uh and yet he he you know he's footnoting this section about medical licenses. Yeah, you bet I am. That's crazy. That's mm-hmm. paranoid. And if you know history, it's never existed. So it's an extreme kind of you could call it utopian or, or I would say nihilistic statement. This is extreme thought. I want people to think about what these guys are actually saying. Also, the deep um, suspicion of public schools, for example, that's mm-hmm. been one of Friedmanites here always attacking public schools, and by God, they've succeeded. I mean, it's, it's 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 a real disaster, except in rich areas, because in America, remember, your local taxes pay for your public schools. So if you're mm-hmm. rich and you're of a certain uh, race, your schools are going to be better than other people's because it's mm-hmm. your local personal. Uh, um public funds that pay for these schools. This is extreme thought. Um uh were they idealists? Um and my friend Brad DeLong says that you know, Hayek saw the kind of brilliance of supply and demand. And I'm like, I think the people already saw that. I think that people understood that most people understood that, yes, you you don't want. Um, your wine necessarily being made by a state company, uh, that private companies make better wine, they make better cars, they make uh, all sorts of better things, but they don't necessarily run healthcare systems better for everyone. Uh, They don't necessarily run train systems better than, it just depends on the country and the place. They certainly, you don't necessarily want them owning your water system either. Very complicated. and, And it's, time specific and it's place specific we have um public utilities companies um that work incredibly well in Canada and then you have to, to provide electricity and then you have private companies in America working less well my point being is that i believed that their thought was first of all a break from free market thought before them that until you get to the late 19th century and you get to the to um, Jevons and Marshall who start saying, look, general equilibrium can be found. You just need to find a way to free the market. Now, people like Jevons and Marshall I admire more because they they were interested in trade, trade unions. They saw that there might be these conditions by which the market, more conditions for which the market might work on its own, but they still believed that if you found the right recipe, the market would just work and create wealth. Hayek gets rid of all the trappings. It's just supply and demand. And And Polanyi, Carl Polanyi suggested that it actually had fascist undertones. And I actually believe that. Um, So you can argue, you can quibble with my footnotes. You can quibble with my, uh, someone attacked my, my um, characterization of Keynes, which I mean, I don't see any problem with my characterization of Keynes. They've attacked me on every single element of that chapter to the point where it actually seems like there is a um, concerted corporate effort to attack me, which it appears that there actually is um, on these matters.
0: Um, I would say that those things are good if they come from that corner.
1: Well, they, they are, but you know, in America, people still see Friedman as this kind of hero and and Hayek too and and these attacks on my footnotes and my readings. no one, by the way, has ever brought up my idea about general equilibrium. No one wants to mention that. It's just the footnotes, the idea that instead of being Alfred Marshall was a lecturer of of moral philosophy, not a professor, although in America that's the same thing hmm. Um the fact is is to take to claim that the state, and by the way hayek said that any time the state intervenes in a sector it becomes a snowballing effect that takes away all political liberty and 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 leads to dictatorship and that's actually insane that's literally historically insane he uses an example of weimar that one sector is taken over and then the german economy is something like some huge percentage gets taken over by the state i'm like that Weimar economy example is the one example you use historically. It's just not true. States are taking over sectors of economies all the time, and it doesn't lead to dictatorship. Is it ideal? No? I actually don't like certain things being run by the state, but there are other things that obviously to me seem extremely healthy that that the public good is being overseen and that it's not, you know, it's not just a profit oriented thing. Some things are necessary to society. People can disagree with me on that. So therefore, yes, I see them as actual departures from a free market tradition, which very much saw free markets as tied to a state that was involved. Now, Adam Smith, we can get to this, Yes, warns against this, but at the same time celebrates it. Smith is a hedger. He hedges on everything. And we can talk about that. But no, yes. I, I think... Friedman and Hayek. It's quite interesting that all the attacks on my book have been about my readings of Smith and Friedman and Hayek. That's like um, a fifth of my book. It's um, it's not completely central to my argument, but the fury of the reaction to something which seems quite obvious to me. And the New York Times reviewer who attacked me said that nothing I said was wrong. It's just that all my footnotes were wrong, so I couldn't be trusted. And then what I said about Smith was wrong, so drop the book. Okay.
0: Um, well, yeah, anyway, let's not it's... drop the book just yet, and <laughs> and, and maybe let, let's get to the conclusion and let's finally turn to Adam Smith, of, of which it seems now, if I believe the New York Times, that you don't know anything about him. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. Now, You write that uh, for Smith, uh, if there is one clear idea to take away from him, from his economic work, it is that morality is essential for a market function. I think this is quite the daunting provocation you have here, and generally when confronted with all the destructive economic crisis, as we have witnessed in the past decades, one would tend to go more towards ideas of market limitations or exactly more state intervention. Now, although your insistence on the importance of the figure of Colbert does probably not avoid some of this interventionism, it is clear that this doesn't suffice for you. Can you say something more about This morality about Smith in the first place, but also and especially about the importance of morality in his theory of economics and for us living today.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, Smith and I want to there are two things I want to say about Smith. And I've written about this on the Liberty Fund Web website as a response to the multiple attacks on me about Smith. Smith does not believe that greed is good. That is an impossible belief at the time to defend as a moral philosopher, as a Ciceronian, and as a Stoic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, as the, the the kind of deist that he is. Um, he believes, and he says this very, very clearly, that society needs impartial spectators. Now, who are they? There are certain leaders of society who have the moral discipline to have compassion and have benevolence towards others who are suffering or who have even done bad things. They need to be able to step back and to actually make benevolent, disinterested um, decisions for the common good. He says that those are the people who should be legislators and he actually refers to those people as we in um, the first paragraph of the theory of moral sentiments. Now, who is we? He comes from a smaller land-owning family um, he works for the biggest landowners in Scotland as a tutor to their children, actually helping them to oversee their estates, and eventually, through the university as well, teaching their children. And then also, um, they award him in later life when he claims to be writing um, his work on jurisprudence. He gets a sort of very, very well-paid sinecure from them as a customs tax collector.
0: Mm.
1: Um They are also the people that buy his books. They are the ones that give his books the success. Smith is actually working for this class of people whom represent this kind of old senatorial class that Cicero lauded. Mm. Uh, Smith and they would all be aware of those references of the good legislator, of the impartial spectator, referring back to Epictetus and Stoicism and to a long tradition of, of Stoic thought, which Cicero became the sort of main Cicero Seneca Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus became these main vehicles that's what he taught in his classes um therefore when he says by the way when he says um the the self-interest of um you know the butcher the baker and the brewer he never talks about the self-interest of that higher citizen he constantly talks about merchants and and then lower artisan, commercial people having self-interest or or operating only by their self-interest. But there's a higher brand of person who is this impartial spectator. That's the entire topic of the theory of moral sentiments. And they think about the good of society. If you have a society of people working towards compassion, working towards um, uh, uh, benevolence, then hopefully that society will help people. And he says this, the merchant will always make the wrong decision for society out of greed and self-interest and a monopolistic instinct. But if society can pull them away from that, and if we keep them out of government, and he's very clear, they should never be in government, these people, then they will make the right decision. And what's the right decision? Go back and read it. It's to invest in your country, not to invest in other countries. Which is actually not the most free market idea I've ever heard. <laughs> no. um, so there's really nothing in Smith. If the people who are greedy that he says they're greedy and he says, hopefully that greed can help society, but that will have to work out by other groups of people not being greedy. Mm. And those are, that's his entire impartial spectator theory and his theory of the good um, as the good legislator. The second idea of Smith, which, which I am startled that people don't understand, is Smith did not understand modern wealth creation or capitalism. Mm-hmm. Smith has a stadial theory of wealth where it starts with hunter-gatherers and then farmers, and then you have a commercial society. But Smith, over and over again, more or less quoting what he said, the best and finest system he had ever seen, which was physiocracy, believed that all wealth initially comes from agriculture and that commercial wealth is therefore equal to agricultural production that you're not going to have. And and by the way, this is really an actual specific theory that's being put into place. Smith is working with the great landowners of the time to clear out the Highland tribes and to make their land more profitable for cattle and for lamb. The Highland clearances were, some call it a genocide. I don't want to get into that term. They are clearing the land of unproductive people. There are articles about this. Smith mentions the Highland clearances, the Highlanders, usually in derogatory tones. He's involved with the people who are making the legislation to clear the Highlands out. Because there is a belief if land becomes more productive, these guys will then help a commercial society with beef production. Okay, mm. But he believes that Agricultural production will then lead to the exponential production of commerce and industry. At the time, everyone from 17th century thinkers to um, Alexander Hamilton say that's not true. Agriculture doesn't produce wealth first. It is actually brains and artifice creating machines and industry, which as Hamilton says, can work with many hands rather than one. There are others that actually see what we know today, that actually wealth is created by inventions and industry, which have exponential value. And guess what? The Dutch in the 16th century already knew that agriculture was not directly related to industrial output. Therefore, they actually started pushing food growing outside of Holland. They imported their food. They used their land for and I mentioned in the books for industrial products mm. rather than for food production. Smith completely misunderstands this. And by the way, read Alexander Hamilton's um, project on manufacturers. It is uh, just a, a complete—you um, know—he he completely disagrees with Smith and mm. says it's actually manufacturing, and therefore we need—we're going to need some. T- all careful subsidies for infant industries, which Smith also, by the way, at a certain point says, yes, you might need subsidies for infant industries, but Smith misunderstands where wealth comes from. He thinks it comes from agricultural labor and then by truck and barter. Okay. That's not where it comes from. It comes from invention and exponential wealth in, in manufacturing and the Italian city states knew that, um, Uh, Antonio Serra writes about it. Um, Colbert writes about the fact that farming is not where wealth is going to come from. It's going to come from looms.
0: Mm.
1: And they're already coming up with new shuttlecocks and other things that, and new kinds of looms that are more productive. It's not the amount of hands that are going to create these things. So I think that Smith does not understand capitalist wealth creation. I think that Smith is a moralist, and on this, I actually think he has something. I think you need a society that that has benevolence, a, a good society that has good tendencies that doesn't t- trust greed to make the right decisions. I believe that Smith says that, but I also believe that Smith was serving this landed elite, and that gets me to statements. And i I regret that I didn't that I didn't say more about why I think, for example, Smith. If he doesn't believe in slavery, he sure hedges on slavery a lot by saying slavery's bad, it's inefficient. However, it's perpetual and there's nothing we can do about it. I think Smith is constantly responding to his patrons and to the the economic interests of those who pay him in Glasgow. And I think that you shouldn't, just like you have to be very careful with, with someone like Machiavelli says, you should not take Smith at his word. You should read him very, very, very carefully.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, thank you so much for this uh, conversation, Jacob. Reading somebody carefully is always the best lesson that one can take away from a philosophical discussion. Now, there are still so many things that I would have liked to address, like the importance of the image creating you talk about and trust in the history of economic theory. Um, Or, for example, if you intentionally confirmed so many of Foucault's archaeological work, and uh, also maybe especially why it is so hard for merchants not to cheat and for economists to remember that merchants have this tendency and so many more uh, uh, questions that I would have liked to ask you. But unfortunately, our time is up. And for all those who want to have a closer look at your book, Jacob, I highly recommend it. It's called The Free Market, The History of an Idea, published by Basic Books. Thanks again so much for talking to me, Jacob.
1: Thank you so much, Christoph. I appreciate it.
0: And thanks also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at PICT, uh, at Bookaholics. And you, dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at PICT, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join PICT, please visit our website. And if you wish to contribute to this series dedicated to books, maybe by proposing a recent book or even simply by recording your own episode of Bookaholics, please do get in touch. My name is Christoph van Houten, thank you and bye.